Let's turn to Galatians chapter 1, uh, verse 1. We are beginning to walk through the book of Galatians in a brand new sermon series called Authentic Gospel. So we will preach all the way through Galatians. Um, if someone was asked me this morning, it came up, and so let me kind of explain some of the preaching decisions that are made here at the church. Because someone asked, well, when are we going to finish Genesis? And then the next question is, and how about seeing and savoring? And, and, you know, all right, so we've kind of got these little half series going out there. And, well, the problem is, is that seeing and savoring has already taken four years. And so it's going to take a little bit more time to, to preach through the Gospels. And we want to give the church a very well-rounded diet of God's Word. So Deemer and I are actually following a very specific plan of going between the Old Testament and the New Testament and hitting all the different genres of Scripture, hitting the important sections of the Scripture, because it's important to have that. So we had not preached out of the law in many years here at Harbin, so it was, we made the decision the last time we broke away from seeing and savoring was to go to Genesis. But Genesis is also a long book, and that will take a while. And so we, what we do is we look for natural breaking points in the passages we're preaching through or the, or the books we're preaching through, especially if it's a long series, and take those natural breaking points and then go back and perhaps do another series. So it's time now to come back to the epistles. We haven't been in, an epistle, in one of Paul's epistles in a while, so that's why we're coming back to the book of Galatians, and we'll jump back over to Genesis later. Genesis 11, between 11 and 12, is a perfect breaking point to go and do something else, and we'll come back to Genesis 12 later. But today, we're in Galatians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 today. So if you can turn there, please, I'd like everyone to have their Bibles open. I know some of you have your Bibles on electronic. That's fine as well. But I want to read the Scripture together. Uh, I want you to be interacting with the Scripture as I preach it. Let me ask the kids in here, while you're finding the text, how many of you like going to the beach? How many of you like the beach? Okay, there's some. Hey, not as many as I thought. What do you like about the beach? Someone tell me what. Just, just shout it out. What do you like about the beach? The water, okay. Is that what I heard back there? Was that what, what, what Asher was saying? No? Okay, Asher's contradicting himself now. Someone else, what do you like about the beach? You like the sand? That's actually one of the reasons I don't enjoy the beach is, is the sand. The water's fun, the sun, uh, the temperature, all of that. It can be a lot of fun to go to the beach. Now, when I was a kid, I enjoyed going to the beach more than I do now. My, my family loves the beach. Heather loves the beach. The girls love the beach. I, I, I'm not a real big fan of going to the beach. But when I was a kid, we went all the time because our mission, um, our group of missionaries in Ecuador, we would go at the end of the year in December to our Baptist camp there on the beach in Ecuador called Manglaralto. And we'd go down to this Baptist camp for a time of refreshment and renewal and fellowship. Now, in Ecuador, it's warm year-round, and so going to the beach in December is no problem. But we'd go down there, and we would get together. All the missionary families would get together for this, this what we call the year-end retreat. And that beach there in Manglaralto was, um, was, a, was a beautiful beach, and it had very big waves, huge waves at this beach. Now, you know what happens when you're at a beach that has huge waves. It also has something else. What it, what it, if a beach has really big waves, what else does that beach have? It has a very strong undertow, Okay. So at Mangaralto, it had a very strong current and undertow there, so it was kind of a dangerous beach. Matter of fact, some people, none of our missionaries, but some other people actually had died at that beach before. And so it was this beautiful beach with big waves with a very strong undertow, a very strong current. And so I remember as a kid going there and playing 
at the beach and being with our friends. And we would get in the water knee high, waist high, and we'd be throwing frisbees and other things like that. And we'd look over to the shore, and there would be our parents sitting on the shore. Now, tell me if this has ever happened to you before. If you're at a beach that actually has an undertow or, or any kind of current, you're sitting there playing, and for about 30 minutes or so, 20 minutes, and you're playing, and, and then you look back over, and you're no longer where you were before. You've somehow drifted down, down shore. Okay, and that would happen at Manglar Alto, and, and because it was such a dangerous beach, uh, I remember my mom would shout out to us. Okay, we, we weren't paying attention. We, we were drifting, and she'd shout out, Stephen Doyle, you know, get back over here. And I would go, oh, you know, I didn't even realize it. I didn't even realize I had drifted that far. Here I am 50 yards down, down shore, and she would have to call me back, call me back to, to safety, call me back to the place where she could, she could keep a watch over me. I thought about that story as I came to the book of Galatians because basically what we have here in this book of Galatians is Paul's shout out to the churches of Galatia for them to stop drifting away from the gospel. He's shouting out for them to come back to the shores of grace. Stop drifting from the gospel. They were not only drifting from the gospel, they were actually beginning to embrace a different gospel altogether. Now, the reason that they had begun to drift is that some Jewish false teachers had infiltrated the churches there in the region of Galatia and had begun to teach them that in order to be truly saved, you need to adhere to the Mosaic law, especially the law of circumcision. In order to be truly saved, you, you need to come underneath the law and be circumcised. So, so they would, they would not deny Christ outright. They would say, okay, yeah, it's, it's, it's right for you to believe in Jesus and, and to seek him for the forgiveness of your sins. But if you really, really, truly want to be saved and want to be a, a child of Abraham and, and want to be um, someone who's going to receive the, the covenant promises, well, then you need to be circumcised and you need to come underneath the law. Paul knew that this teaching was deadly. So Paul, like a parent concerned for a child who's in danger, gives a bold, this, this letter here, in this letter he gives a bold yet heartfelt warning to the Galatian churches. Galatians, therefore, is unlike any of Paul's other letters. It's very firm, it's very direct, and it's filled with language designed to cut to the heart and thereby awaken the Galatian churches. So I want us to stand now as we read these first five verses of Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. We stand at Harbin's in the honor of the reading of God's word because we believe that the word we're about to reach are the very words of God himself. As Paul will even testify to in today's passage of scripture, this isn't just Paul speaking. This is the authority of Jesus Christ as if he were standing right here with us right now speaking. These are his words. So Galatians chapter 1, let's begin in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, I ask now that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word. I pray, Lord, that you would use this epistle to the Galatian churches as a tool in our own hearts to call us back from any type of drifting that might be happening in our own hearts and corporately to call Harbins to stand on the firm rock of the gospel of grace. So Lord, we ask that you would grant me uh, a mouth that can preach according to your word and grant all of us ears to hear what your word is saying. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Now, the book of Galatians, the, the, the epistle to the Galatians, has been called the Magna Carta of Christian Liberty. This epistle has been vital throughout church history, but it played a very special role and a unique role in the Protestant Reformation. As I've said before, and I'll probably say many more times throughout this year, this year is the 500th anniversary of the start of the Protestant Reformation. Now notice I said the start of the Protestant Reformation. If you understand Reformation theology, you understand that we are semper reformanda. We're always reforming. So the Reformation is still continuing. Okay? So it's quite appropriate that as we begin this 500th year of the Reformation, that we begin it by studying the book of Galatians. Now when people think of which book influenced Martin Luther and thus the Reformation, most people think of what epistle? The epistle to the Romans. That's, that's what usually pops into people's mind, Romans. And certainly the epistle of Romans is, is the, the towering pillar of the Reformation that, that gives voice to and explains the doctrines of grace most fully. But what people may not be aware of is that it was the book of Galatians that God really used to kickstart the Reformation. While the book of Romans had begun to soften Luther's heart, it was his study of Galatians that resulted in his conversion. So Luther describes Galatians this way. He says, this is my epistle to which I am betrothed. It is my Katie von Bora. Now, now Katie was Luther's wife. And if you know anything about the life of Martin Luther, you know how in love he was with Katie. Therefore, to say this about the book of Galatians was his way of paying his highest respects to this epistle. And beyond the Reformation, throughout church history, time and again, whenever the church has begun to drift from the gospel of grace, adding man's works to it, the book of Galatians has been used, has been used by God to intervene and call the people back, call the people back to grace. So let's jump right into the text this morning. And the very first thing I, I want you to see is simply this. I want us to see the author. The very first word of this book is simply Paul. Paul. Now, it was custom in ancient letter writing, as you probably know, to put the name of the sender of the letter at the very beginning. Matter of fact, that actually makes a whole lot more sense than what we do in our modern letter writing, right? We, we put the name at the very end, and if you didn't have an envelope with a return address on it or something like that, you wouldn't know who's writing you the letter unless you flip to the very end and say, oh, okay, this is from so-and-so. So I actually think the ancient method makes a whole lot more sense. So Paul is the sender of this letter. And even the most liberal of scholars accepts the Pauline authorship of the book of Galatians. 
Now, Paul played a unique role, as you probably know, in the establishment of God's church. And he had the background necessary to fight these Jewish false teachers with their false gospel head on. For Paul, who was also known by his Semitic name, Saul, had, prior to his radical conversion on the road to Damascus, he had been the most zealous of law-keeping Jews. He testifies to this in Philippians chapter 3, where he says that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That was his resume. But Paul had long since put any hope in any of that. For he was brought to faith by an encounter with the risen Christ. And thus in Philippians chapter 3, continuing on in verse 7 through 9, he says that, that he counted this law-keeping as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that came from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, that depends on faith. So this is the man who writes this letter. As Calvin puts it, Paul was himself a wolf who had been turned into a shepherd. So who better to deal with wolves that are coming into the church than the man who once was a wolf but had been converted into a shepherd. Paul was now, according to verse 1, he was an apostle. The very faith he once tried to extinguish he now was an apostle of. He was a messenger of that very faith. Paul reminds them that he's not just some itinerant preacher. He is an authorized apostle. Now, I explained the office of apostle a little bit last week. The word apostle simply means one sent with a message. So when Paul was Saul and he was traveling around, traveling to Damascus, for example, to, to round up the Christians and to, to put them into jail and even put some of them to death, he was going with authority. He was actually going with a message to round up these, these Christians. And so he was actually an apostle of the Pharisees at that time. But now he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the word apostle, like I said, it means one sent with a message. And that, um, that word... Uh, was used specifically, it was used in a couple of different senses, but it was used of those who were foundational to the church, and that is the 12 disciples of Jesus minus Judas, so that makes 11 disciples of Jesus, plus Paul the apostle. Those were the 12 apostles, capital A, apostles. These are the ones Jesus speaks of in Matthew 19, 28, when he says that the apostles will sit in judgment over the tribes of Israel. So these are the 12. These are the foundational teachers. These are the ones who established the New Testament scriptures. These are the apostles. But that word apostle was also used in a more general sense of people who were going with the message of the gospel. So Barnabas is called an apostle. We also see that James, the brother of Jesus, in this very book is called an apostle. But what Paul is referring to here is the capital A apostle. He is one of the ones commissioned by, um, one of the ones who has seen the risen Christ, and who has been given a specific message from the risen Christ, and who has been given authority from Christ, and even supernatural ability to confirm that authority with, through signs and miracles. He is one of those apostles, and that's what he means when he starts this whole letter off by saying he's an apostle. And so that leads me to the next point. We see the author, but we also see early on in this book, we see the authority. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul wants to make it very clear from the very beginning of this 
epistle that his authority is not derived from man, but from God. Paul will go into much more detail, a much more detailed defense, I should say, of his authority, of the authority of his apostleship in chapter 1, verse 11 through chapter 2, verse 10. So we'll get there. We'll see him defend this a whole lot more in a lot more detail. But right now he just mentions the authority from the very beginning here because apparently these false teachers had infiltrated the churches and they were trying to draw into question Paul's apostleship. Perhaps the very fact that he wasn't one of the original 12 was their primary argument. Perhaps they argued that Paul was some rogue apostle who had his own unique teachings without the proper authorization that the other apostles had. Paul frequently had to defend himself from slanderous attacks like this from false teachers. But I want you to know that he doesn't do so. He doesn't defend himself because he cares about his own name. This isn't an ego trip for Paul. He's not like us who, when someone slanders us on Twitter, we start defending ourselves because our pride has been bruised. Paul could care less about what men thought of him. He had no desire to make much of himself. The reason Paul takes pains to defend the authority of his office is that the validity of his message, the gospel, is inextricably tied to the validity of his apostleship. The great New Testament scholar J.B. Lightfoot says that the two threads which run through this epistle, the defense of the apostles' own authority and the maintenance of the doctrines of grace, are knotted together. Paul defends himself because to deny his authoritative position is to deny his authoritative words. So first he puts it negatively, that his authority is not from men nor through man. Now there are two different prepositions here that Paul uses, from men and through men. And what he is saying by using those two different prepositions, he is saying that men are not the source or origin of his authority, nor is man the instrument or the means of his authority. It's not from man, nor is it through man. And notice that his authority is not from men, plural, nor through man, singular. He is saying that his authority is not derived from any council of men, nor did he need any special person to appoint him. Instead, his authority is directly from God. It says, through Jesus Christ and God the Father. The means by which Paul became an apostle was Jesus Christ and God the Father. His authority came directly from God, and that should make all the difference. I'm going through a little um, devotional book with Emma Kate right now that actually is a walk through the book of Galatians. And so it's a verse-by-verse walk. Now, it's going to be not as extensive as what we're doing on Sunday morning, obviously. But it's a verse-by-verse walk through the book of Galatians. And so it kind of explains this whole idea of authority here. And so I was just going to read from it, and maybe it helps the kids understand what it is that Paul's trying to communicate here. And if you want to get this book, it's called God's Mighty Acts and Salvation by Star Mead. And it's a great little devotional. I did it with Olivia years ago, and now going through it with Emma Kate. So here's, as she tries to explain this first part of Galatians where Paul talks about his authority, she says this. Imagine you're sitting in your living room watching television. Your little sister comes in, so your little sister, sees what you're doing and thinks you shouldn't be doing it. She thinks you should be doing your homework instead. So she says to you, turn off the television. Will you do it? So kids, this question's for you. Will you do it? Little sis has come in. 
says, I don't think you should be doing that. You need to turn off the television. Will you turn off that television? Yes or no? You, you will? I do not. Rowan, I don't for a second believe what you just said. Not for a second. No. No, you're, you're, you, you probably won't. She's just your sister. She's not your boss. You'd probably say something like this. You're not the boss of me. Right? Okay, you're hiding your face now, Rowan. The law is convicting the heart right now. You're not the boss of me. But suppose your sister leaves and goes to the room where your father is reading the newspaper and you hear your dad and your sister talking. Then your sister returns. Dad says, turn off the TV and go do your homework, she tells you. Now will you do it? Good. Thank you, Rowan. <laughs> Probably so. Because now it's, it isn't just your sister telling you. She's giving you a message from your dad and her message carries all of your father's authority behind it. What Paul is saying is that the message I've given you guys, the gospel, and the message I'm about to give you, isn't my message. It carries all the authority of Jesus Christ and God the Father. So Paul here, his words, therefore, are Jesus' words. But this isn't just important for the Galatians to recognize this. It's vitally important for our day, too. You see, Paul's authority is still under attack even today. And I'm not talking about an attack from liberal scholars. Liberal scholars who don't embrace the infallibility of the inerrancy of Scripture are always going to attack what the message of the Bible is. But I'm talking even within evangelical circles. And, and, and Paul's words come under attack in a lot of different ways. Let me just give you one example. Have you heard of the red-letter Christian movement? The red-letter Christian movement says, hey, you know what? We're going to give higher priority to the words of Jesus, the red letters, referring to many Bibles that have the words of Jesus in red. Well, we're going to put the, the words of Jesus, we're going to give those higher priority. Now, the, the goal behind this is, is to have the type of ethic Jesus has. Well, I want to love the poor. I want to serve the needy, just like Jesus does. So I'm going to focus on the red letters. So, so here's where the drifting happens. I understand the intent is okay. But the problem is what you're doing when you say, I'm going to focus on the red letters, you're creating a canon within the canon. And you're saying that these red letters are more important than Paul's letters or any of the other letters in Scripture for all that matter. And that leads to some very problematic thinking and some very problematic theology. And we're seeing that emerge. This red letter Christian movement has been going on for a while now. And you're seeing a lot of it emerge like Christians who will say something like this. Well, you know, I just don't think I should really speak out against gay marriage or homosexuality because Jesus never actually condemns gay marriage, nor does he condemn homosexuality. And you say, well, what, wait a second, the scriptures are very clear. The scriptures are crystal clear. Oh, we, we have it in 1 Corinthians, we have it in Romans, we have it in 1 Timothy. We see in the scriptures plenty of places where God condemns homosexual behavior. It is clearly a sin. And they say, no, 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 I'm not really, I'm not concerned with what Paul says. You see, Paul's kind of judgmental. Paul's kind of harsh and mean and I just want to, I want to focus on what Jesus says. You see what you've done? You looked at Apostle Paul in the face, and you've discounted the authority of his words. That's what's happening. And so the words of Paul are still under attack in many ways in our day. So this message is just as important for us as it is for the Galatians. Paul is saying that his words are Jesus' words. Now, I want you to notice something in the text here. He says his apostleship came 
through Jesus Christ and God the Father. What we have here is a very high Christology. Paul is stating things in such a way that he's putting Jesus and the Father on the same plane as co-equals. He uses only one preposition here. Through both Jesus Christ and God the Father. What he's meaning by doing that is saying that Jesus Christ and God the Father are jointly the singular source and means by which his authority comes. What's more is by saying that his authority came not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ, Paul is showing that Jesus is no mere man. He is divine. He is the God-man. Now, by this, I do not mean that Paul is denying the humanity of Christ. In the very next words of verse 1, he talks about the Father who raised him from the dead. The only way Jesus could die and be raised was if he was fully human. And then later in Galatians 4, 4, Paul will say that God sent forth his son born of a woman. So Paul embraces the full humanity of Christ. But he wants us to know that this Jesus is more than mere man. He's also the second person of the Godhead. And Jesus' authority is manifested, is put on display by the fact that God the Father raised him from the dead. And it was the risen Christ who had commissioned Paul, who had given him this message. It was the risen Christ who had given him all authority to speak these things. When did that happen? When was Paul commissioned like this? Well, we see it. In, on the road to Damascus, on his conversion. Okay, and, and so I want us to, to think about Paul's words where he recalls that conversion experience. In Acts chapter 26, verse 16 and following, he recalls the moment that he was converted by Christ on the Damascus road, and he says this, and this is, he's quoting Jesus here, Acts 26, verse 15. Jesus says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There's Paul's authority right there. He needs nothing else. Now he goes on to mention in verse 2 that there were some brothers who were with him. Now unlike some of Paul's other epistles he, where he lists out the people, sometimes in, in his letters he'll list out who's with him. There's Luke and there's so-and-so and so so Silas or whatever. In this letter he doesn't do that and there's speculation as to why he doesn't do that. He simply says that there are brothers with me. Some people think he doesn't do that because his whole point is he doesn't want to name drop. He doesn't want to say who all's with him because he wants people to understand his authority doesn't come from man. It comes from Jesus Christ. Other people think it's the exact opposite of that, that he mentions the brothers now because he wants them to know that there are people with me who can confirm that my authority is from Jesus and not from man. But regardless, it really doesn't matter. There are brothers with him. I think he's just being brief, to be honest with you. I think he's ready to get to verse 6, okay? He's ready to get to the rebuke. And so he's being very short. He's being very terse in this introduction of the letter. So we've seen the author. We see the authority. And now I want us to look at the audience. The audience. That is the recipients of the letter. Verse 2, the second half of verse 2. To the churches of Galatia. Now that's all he has to say about the recipients. The audience for this letter. It's a surprisingly terse salutation. In Paul's other epistles, he usually has some cordial words to say about the church to whom he's writing. Let me give you some examples. In Romans chapter 1, verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, 
In 1 Corinthians 1, 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Ephesians 1, 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Colossians 1, 2, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. So you get the point. In his other letters, he, he has more to say, but none of that to the Galatians. No flowery language here. His mood is clearly coming through. Now, who were the Galatians? Let's take a little moment to talk about the Galatians. The churches were located in the southern portion of the Roman province of Galatia, which is found in the larger section we call Asia Minor. Let me go ahead and bring up on screen here a map, because I want to show you Paul's missionary journey so you can get an idea where Galatia is, okay? So um, Galatia is this Roman province, and the, the cities that Paul is going to preach in are located on a major Roman highway called the Sebastian Way. Now this road, the Sebastian Way, it, it was a very important route and it connected uh, Ephesus, which is over here in the east, with um, Cilicia and um, the important areas over here. So there was a road that went right across here. It was called the Sebastian Way. It was a major artery of communication for the Roman government and a major trade route. Now, Paul and Barnabas, they traveled this route on their first missionary journey. Now, you can read about that in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, through Acts chapter 14, verse 23. So if you want to know the context of Galatians, it's happening, the planting of those churches is happening right there in, in chapter 13 and 14 of the book of Acts. Now, the cities in which that they visited along this route were these cities right here. There's um, Antioch of Pisidia. It's not the same Antioch where he started. The Antioch... In Syria is his planting, is his sending church. They sent him. But the first place they stopped in Galatia was the Antioch of Pisidia. Then they went to Iconium. Then they went to Lystra. And then they went to a city called Derbe. Now, in Antioch, when they get to Antioch, so here's, they, they leave, they leave this Antioch. They go to Cyprus. You remember reading about what happened there in Cyprus with the Roman consulate who, who heard the gospel. And at this point, they go up to Perga. And that's when John Mark abandoned them. John Mark went back home. And they continued on to Galatia. And when they get to Antioch, um, they're there and they begin, as Paul always does, preaching the gospel in the synagogues. And it's very interesting. They get there and actually they're being received by the Jews. The Jews are fascinated by this gospel message. And he's preaching Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures. And they say, you know what, we want to hear more about this, so come back next week. So they do. They come back the next Saturday to preach the gospel again in the synagogue. And this time, though, there's a bunch of Gentiles there. A boatload of Gentiles have come to hear the same message. And this stirs the Jews up to, to jealousy. And they get jealous and they get angry and they begin to contradict what Paul's saying. They begin to slander his name. Now we read that some Jews did believe and many Gentiles did believe, but they began to be persecuted by the Jews at that point. So they, they leave Antioch and they go over to Iconium and they begin to do the same thing there. They preach the gospel. And wouldn't you know it, some of the Jews from Antioch followed them and began to persecute them there in Iconium as well. So then they leave Iconium and they go to Lystra. Now in Lystra, they are, they are there and they see a crippled man and they heal this crippled man, Paul and Barnabas that is, and they heal this crippled man. And when the people there see that this man's been healed, they think Paul and Barnabas are gods. And they begin to worship Paul and Barnabas. They begin to try to sacrifice, uh, give them sacrifices. And of course, this, this completely upsets Paul and Barnabas. And Paul says, no, no, you can't do this. And he preaches the gospel to them. And they hear the gospel. And how do they respond to the gospel? They stop giving him sacrifices, first of all. But then they try to stone him. Okay? They take him and they stone him. And they leave him for dead outside of the city of Lystra. Well, Paul gets right back up. Goes back into the city of Lystra to finish his work. And then they head off to the city of 
Derby, which is where their journey ended. Now, I want you to look at that. There's this major trade route. It goes through these cities, and it eventually goes into Cilicia. It goes to Paul's hometown of Tarsus. And then that road continues over into Antioch, where they began. So it makes sense for them just to finish the loop, go on through. But at this point, when they're in Derby, they make a decision. They say, you know what? Let's go back. Let's go back and strengthen the churches. So I can imagine the conversation. Paul's saying, hey, Barnabas, I know we're getting close to home. I know that's the next stop. But here's what I'm thinking. Let's go back into the towns we've already preached the gospel. And Barnabas says, you mean the towns like where we were spit upon and yelled at and stoned? You talking about that? Yes, exactly. Let's go back there and let's strengthen the brothers. And so that's what they do. They do an about face. And Barnabas, being the encourager that he is, probably just, yeah, Paul, I'm up for that. And so they go back and they... Strengthen the brothers, and it also says they establish elders in all the churches. They establish elders in all the churches. And so what they do is they make their way back, and then they take a boat and come back home. And in Acts chapter 14, they get to Antioch. They share what's happened. The brothers celebrate all that's happened, how God has brought the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, I say all that to say is that this controversy erupts in the churches of Galatia sometime between Acts chapter 14 and Acts chapter 15. Shortly after Paul gets home, he hears about the controversy that's now erupting in these churches. It has to break his heart. He just planted these churches, and he hears about them straying now from the gospel. Now, why do I think it happens between 14 and 15? Well, let me ask you a question. What happens in Acts chapter 15? Without going there and looking at it, I want to see if you know. What happens in Acts chapter 15? The Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council is called... Because we read this in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. It says this. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now that's the false teaching that infected the Galatian churches in a nutshell right there. And now it's happening right there in Antioch. So I think what happens here is that this false teaching has begun to spread. And now Paul and Barnabas and others are going to go to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles, to meet with the, um, the elders of the Jerusalem church to try to settle this matter about the inclusion of the Gentiles in the people of God. And so they're going there. They're going to deal with this. And the reason I think that he wrote the letter to the Galatian churches before the Jerusalem council is we have no mention of it in the book. Now, there is a mention of Paul meeting with the apostles, but it doesn't have this, it's not parallel to what happens in Acts chapter 15. And so it would have made sense that if he's writing to these churches to counter the very false teaching that the Jerusalem council is about to deal with, he would have mentioned the council. He would have mentioned the judgment of the council, and the judgment was simply this. No, we're not going to require these churches to come underneath the, the, the Mosaic law. We're not going to put that burden on them. And so you think he would have mentioned that, or the letter, because the Jerusalem Council ends with them writing a letter to the churches, explaining the decision. So you think he would have either mentioned the letter or mentioned the council had he written Galatians after the Jerusalem Council. So I think what happens here, he gets back to Antioch, they celebrate what God has done, then he begins to get word of what's happening. And, and then he begins to write his letter to the church in Galatia saying, no, 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 you can't abandon the gospel. And then it begins to happen right there in their backyard. And so they go to the Jerusalem council. And I think it may have even been while he was on the way to the Jerusalem council, he writes these letters to the Galatian church. So that would put the dating of Galatians. And most scholars put the dating here, even liberal scholars, at 48 AD. That's extremely early. That makes Galatians the earliest of all the written New Testament books. Even earlier than the gospels. 
A.D. 48. So, Paul was broken and concerned for the churches because these false teachers were coming in. And they were teaching that God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, for God's glory alone, wasn't sufficient. You see, friends, the five solas are not a Reformation invention. The five solas were there in A.D. 48. And they were under attack already in A.D. 48. Now, if the Galatian churches, planted by Paul, taught by Paul, encouraged by the great encourager Barnabas himself, if these churches, who had also had elders appointed by Paul and were in existence within a decade of Jesus Christ himself on this planet, if those churches can drift from the gospel, how much more can we? So Galatians is a hugely important book for Harbin's just as much as it was for the Galatians. J. Gratian Machen in the 1930s, if you don't know who Machen was, he was a great defender of biblical orthodoxy because in the early 20th century, that's when the modernism and the liberalism began to take over and to infect the churches. So J. Gratian Machen wrote this in regards to, to the teaching that was going on there in the Galatian churches. He says, the particular form of merit which they induced men to seek. So he's talking about the false teachers. The, the particular form of merit which they induced men to seek was the merit of keeping the law of Moses, particularly the ceremonial law. At first sight, that fact might seem to destroy the usefulness of the epistle for the present day. For we of today are in no danger of desiring to keep Jewish fasts and feasts. First of all, let me stop right there. I'm breaking away from Machen for a second. Let me give a parenthetical comment. Because that actually is no longer true. There, are, there was a Hebrew roots movement, a Jewish roots movement, which is actually infecting the homeschool movement in very serious ways. There is a call back to the Jewish fasts and feasts so you can feel more spiritual about yourself. It is the same error. But let me continue with Machen. The really essential thing about the Judaizers' contention was not found in those particular works of the law, which they urged upon the Galatians as being one of grounds of salvation, but in the fact that they urged any works in this sense at all. The really serious error into which they fell was not that they carried the ceremonial law over into the new dispensation whither God did not intend it to be carried, but that they preached a religion of human merit over against a religion of divine grace. So the error of the Judaizers is a very modern error indeed, as well as a very ancient error. It is found in the modern church wherever men seek salvation by surrender instead of by faith or by their own character instead of by the imputed righteousness of Christ. In particular, it is found wherever men say the real essentials of Christianity are love, justice, mercy, and other virtues as contrasted with the great doctrines of God's word. These are all just different ways of exalting the merit of man over against the cross of Christ. They are all of them attacks upon the very heart and core of the Christian gospel, and against all of them, the mighty polemic of this epistle to the Galatians is turned. Amen. There's always temptations, friends, facing us to add things to the gospel or put something on the same level of the gospel. It can happen with homeschooling, 
It can happen with family-integrated church or any other models of church. It can happen with views of the end times. It can happen even with good causes, like we saw at the G3 conference, like the abolition of abortion. Anything you put on the same level with the gospel or above the gospel or add to the gospel is to fall into, is to dip your toe into the tide of a different gospel. To turn the the theological triage triangle upside down and to put the tertiary things up at the top is the same problem. Why is this drift so easy for us? Because sinful man always looks for something he can do to contribute to his own salvation or somehow feel closer to God, somehow contribute and earn some merit, something he can take credit for. So we legalistically grab onto rules and systems because we can do those. And any teaching that our relationship with God is based upon what we can do is a move away from grace, which is completely a work of God. Every element and every aspect, every detail of our salvation is the work of the Son, willed by the Father, applied by the Spirit. And we can take no credit at all, Romans 9 16 teaches us that our salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 teaches us that our salvation is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we could give many other scriptures. The scriptures are so clear. But our flesh, our flesh pushes against the monergistic work of God and demands some sort of synergistic cooperation for which we can get credit, even if it's 0.0001% of the credit. Merit is the constant drift of the human heart. And to seek it is to begin to drift away into a deadly current, the same current that the Galatian church found themselves in. These are serious issues. And Galatians, therefore, is a very serious letter. So let's get back to the text here. Not only is Paul's salutation to the Galatians unusually short, in all of his other letters he usually follows up the salutation and then the greeting with a prayer of thanksgiving, offering thanks to God, but, but not here. Okay? Not here. He doesn't, he doesn't have a prayer of thanksgiving for this church. This is a very short, terse salutation, and the lack of thanksgiving reflects the fact that Paul is not happy with them. But this doesn't mean he doesn't love them. His love compels him to warn them, like the parent standing on the shore. His love is compelling him to warn them. We see his deep affection for them emerge in this letter. And even here after the salutation in his greeting in verse 3 we see his heartfelt desire for God to bless them look at verse 3 he says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ despite what's coming in verse 6 Paul wants God's blessing to be upon this church now Paul gives this greeting of grace and peace to all the churches he writes to you see it in every one of his epistles but it's even more poignant here in this epistle Because grace is the very thing that's at stake. So Paul begins the epistle here in verse 3 with grace. And then in chapter 6, verse 18, he ends it with grace. So grace are the bookends that make up or or on either side of this epistle, which is all about grace. So grace, grace to you and peace. It was common in the Greco-Roman world to begin letters with the word uh, kare. The word kare basically meant hello, uh, like us starting a letter with the word dear. 
We really don't think about what we're, we just write dear. You can be writing it to your lawyer. Dear so-and-so, are they really that dear to you? It's just, a, just something we say, right? Um, so in, in the Greek world, in the Roman world, it was, it, was, it was kare. So what Paul does is he Christianizes that greeting by changing it a little bit. He changes it to, to charis. And charis is the word for grace. Paul's desire was for the churches to experience God's unmerited, unearned covenant love, grace. He then adds his desire for them to experience peace. Grace to you and peace. The Greek word for peace is the same word used in the translation of the Old Testament scriptures in what we call the Septuagint. It's the same word used for peace whenever shalom is translated into the Greek. And shalom was the traditional Jewish greeting. Shalom was to wish God's peace and God's well-being upon someone. So Paul greets the churches by taking a Gentile greeting and a Jewish greeting and Christianizing them. For if the churches could find grace with God, then they would have peace with God. Grace and peace. Now notice again in verse 3 that Paul uses one preposition for our Lord Jesus Christ and for God the Father. Grace and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. So again, he's putting them into the same, on the same plane, declaring both of them to be the singular source of grace and peace. And now Paul follows up this greeting and blessing with a summary of the gospel in verses 4 through 5. So we're going to conclude with this. We're going to conclude with Paul's summary of the gospel here. So these last four points will go a little bit quicker. Many people even think that verses 4 and 5 are actually an early Christian creed. That might have been the case. This may have been the creed, the confession of faith that Paul brought to the Galatian churches that they repeated with him. Who knows? But it's a clear articulation of the gospel. So the next of your A's, we have the author, the authority, the audience, and then we have the authentic gospel. The authentic gospel. So here it is, the authentic gospel. First, he gives them the essence of the authentic gospel. The essence of the authentic gospel. Verse we're going to go ahead and start in verse 3, but it's really found in verse 4. So here we go. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is. Who gave himself for our sins. There's the essence of the gospel. He gave himself for our sins. The essence of the gospel is that Jesus died for sinners. That's what we've been saying in our evangelism class, right? Jesus died for sinners. The saving work of Jesus was initiated by Jesus himself. He gave himself 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and it says, who gave himself as a ransom for all. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Oh, friends, that's the essence of the gospel. Jesus giving himself for sinners. 1 Corinthians 15.3, for I delivered to you as of first importance. So here's the essence. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. So Jesus gives himself. We did not merit it. We cannot earn it. We cannot initiate it. Romans 8, 5. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus initiated it. He came as our high priest, offering the sacrifice of himself for our sins to satisfy the wrath of the Father. Notice that he gave himself for our sins. Every single drop of Jesus' blood accomplished its purpose, namely to cover the sins of his people. No blood of Jesus' was ever wasted. Notice the personal nature of Galatians 2.20, which we'll get to eventually. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, loved me, 
and gave himself for me. He didn't just generally shed his blood knowing that only a few would be affected by it. No, his atonement was personal and particular. So we see the essence of the authentic gospel. And next we see uh, the effect of the authentic gospel. Verse 4, who gave himself for our sins, and here's the effect, to deliver us from the present evil age. By the blood of Christ, we have been redeemed, and thus we have been delivered from the bondage of this evil age. We now still, we still live in this evil age, but we have tasted the first fruits of the age to come, the age that is dawning. So a right understanding of the gospel doesn't just affect how we view our personal salvation. Rather, it also affects the way we understand redemptive history. Galatians will show us that the whole counsel of God is about Jesus and finds its climax in the gospel. The authentic gospel sets straight our understanding of the whole story. Paul teaches what we call an inaugurated eschatology. We often call it the already not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. For those of us who are in Christ are indeed already new creations. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Therefore, we are already part of the resurrection age, but not yet fully. This is why we are called aliens and exiles and strangers in this world. Jesus said in John 15, you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. We once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, but no more. Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but did you keep them from the evil one? So we remain in this dark world, but we have been delivered from it. This inaugurated, already not yet eschatology means we are no longer slaves to sin. We are thus enabled by the Holy Spirit to live lives that please God, holy lives in the midst of this dark world. And Paul will discuss that later in this epistle as well. So we have the essence of the authentic gospel. We have the effects of the authentic gospel. Next, I want us to see the origin of the authentic gospel. Again, verse 4, let's read the whole thing and then we'll get to this point. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Here it is, according to the will of God, of our God and Father. Again, we see the Son and the Father in lockstep. The Son willfully gives himself, and that is exactly according to the will of the Father. Our triune God has one will. That's very important and vital to understand about the nature of God. He has one will, and it was the will of the Father, and it was the will of the Son for the Son to die. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, we read this verse earlier. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put into grief. And the early church prayed in Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and following. They were praying, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever, listen to this, your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So it was always the will of the Father for the Son to be crushed. And so what we see at, hinted at here and more fully um, developed in other texts of the Scripture is that before the foundation of the world, our triune God made a covenant within the persons of the Godhead to redeem for himself a people and thus glorify himself. For our salvation is not ultimately about us, it's about God, and that's the fourth point of the authentic gospel. We see the essence of the authentic gospel, the effect, the origin, and we see the objective of the authentic gospel. Look again at verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Listen to this. To whom be the glory forever and ever. The gospel is for the glory of God. 
God's majestic love, God's unyielding justice displayed at the cross to save sinners, to save rebels like us. That is glorious. To bring us into the Trinitarian love. That is absolutely glorious and God deserves all the glory. And that's why an unadulterated gospel is so important. Listen to this. I believe this with all my heart. The degree to which we add any of our merit to the gospel is the degree to which we take credit for some of our salvation and is therefore the degree to which we are thieves, robbing God of the glory that belongs solely to him. I believe the Bible teaches that. Oh, friends, Paul wrote Galatians because the gospel is at stake and thus the glory of God is at stake. Harbins, let us not drift. Let us, with the Galatians over the course of the next couple of months, have ears to hear the Apostle Paul calling on us, calling on us to hold fast to the gospel of grace, come back to the shores of grace. Now I want you to notice that Paul ends his greeting here with the word amen. This word amen, I love how one person put it, it's a fossilized word. What do they mean by that? Well, it's actually an ancient Hebrew word, amen. But the Greeks had no, no equivalent for it in Greek. Neither did, was there an equivalent for it in Latin. Neither is an equivalent for it in English. And so it's just stayed the same. Amen. 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 And so we still use it today. It is a fossilized word. But how many times do we just say it at the end of prayers or songs without even really thinking about it? What does it mean? It means so be it. So be it. It is a declaration of faith. Yes. So be it. I believe these things. So here at the end of this this declaration of the authentic gospel, Paul is calling on the Galatian church to say, amen. Amen. Do you believe this? So be it. And so, to those in here this morning who perhaps have never come to Jesus Christ in any sort of way, you've never professed Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are an unbeliever, This is Paul's challenge to you as well. Will you this morning say, amen? Will you believe the authentic gospel? Will you believe that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead, equal with the Father, robed himself in human flesh, taking on the form of a servant, a slave, and in obedience to his Father, did a slave's work and went all the way to a slave's death. And he did it because we are truly the ones who deserve the slave's death. And so in our place, he took the wrath of God for sinners, for rebels. He died for our sins so that he might deliver us from this body of death and from this evil present age. So we might become new creatures with a new destiny, waiting for a new heavens and earth. And the only way we can enter in that new heavens and earth is that not only were our sins forgiven on the cross, the perfect, glorious, righteous life of Christ without sin, without any type of impurity whatsoever, is credited to us. So that the Father's very love of Jesus, the Son with whom he is well pleased, is now on us on those who repent of their sin 
ask God to forgive their sin through the blood of Jesus Christ and turn to him as their only Lord and Savior. For us, those of us in here who have done that, we can say amen at the end of Galatians chapter 1, verse 5. But if you're here this morning and your heart's for the very first time been awakened to these truths and you're seeing these things for the first time, I beg you, come confess Jesus Christ as Lord and you too will say amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you because your work is glorious. Father, we, we want to magnify you because your gospel is glorious. Holy Spirit, the job you did to take stony hearts like mine and make it believe is glorious. You deserve all the glory. And so God, don't let us even dip a pinky toe in the current of works righteousness, of merit. Instead, let us put all of our hope in an alien righteousness, the righteousness of Christ credited to us, who did all the work. And God, we confess as a church that all things are from you and through you and to you forever and ever. Amen.